Hello, I'm Siobhan, and I'm Harry, and this is our podcast about gothic literature. We're coming into this as a lifelong fan of everything goth on my part. I was the little eight-year-old listening to the Sisters of Mercy in the back of my parents' car, and someone who knows how much about goth. I'm not even sure what is goth, really, frankly. I asked the question whether Marquis de Sade counts as gothic literature, because I read that when I was 18, <laughs> and apparently not. I mean, I'm actually second-guessing that now. Wait, I, wait, I don't believe it. Is it gothic porn, maybe? I, I don't know. A question for another episode. Maybe. Maybe. So what we're going to do is we're going to take we're going to read gothic novels out chapter by chapter with one one chapter per episode and then share our thoughts about them at the end of that and harry is going to be the one reading them aloud because i've read them before and she hasn't yeah so this is going to be a lot funnier there, this way i'm there are definitely going to be pauses because I have heard that they can get a little <laughs> surprising. Mm -hmm. So the Castle of Otranto, just to give you a little background, is in many ways the very first gothic novel. It's what launched the genre, it's what popularised it, and I've wanted to read it since I was a teenager, but back then the internet wasn't quite as accommodating and I wasn't able to get my hands on a copy for years. So I was very excited when I did get it, and then very rapidly disappointed, because <laughs> having actually read the thing now, I understand why people thought the gothic novels were rotting teenage girls' brains. Some of them are good, but so many of them are very bad. Right. Anyway, The Castle of Toronto established a lot of the tropes, and... No, I, 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 everything else will be in the follow-up comments. Okay. Right. So, Harry is going to start reading it now. Okay, and I've been told to skip the prefaces, of which there are two. We'll be covering those in a very special postscript episode. Which, you know, I'm sad about not getting to read them right now, because apparently they were written by the author <laughs> about his book, and he was doing a William Goldman when William Goldman wrote The Princess Bride and was like, I totally found this manuscript somewhere. And translated You'll it. appreciate it more if you've experienced the disaster that is the novel first, I promise. And then there's a sonnet to the Right Honourable Lady Mary Coke, which I'm also going to skip because I don't know who she is. Fair enough. And I don't think she's the main character. She's so not. What an extra way to dedicate your book. Sonnet. Alright, The Castle of Otranto, A Gothic Story. Chapter 1. Manfred, Prince of Otranto, had one son and one daughter. The latter, a most beautiful virgin, which is something that we must always say about young women in Gothic novels, apparently. It is. Is it? Is it? Yeah, is it? Yeah. Right, good. It's important. Aged 18, was called Matilda. Conrad, the son, was three years younger. A homely youth, sickly, and of no promising disposition. God, the author hates Conrad. Yeah. Wow, he's only 15. Of course he has, like... Wow. Yet he was the darling of his father, who never showed any symptoms of affection to Matilda. Manfred had contracted a marriage for his son with the Marquis of Vicenza's daughter Isabella, and she had already been delivered by her guardians into the hands of Manfred, that he might celebrate the wedding as soon as Conrad's infirm state of health would permit. Wow, it's a great, great match for Isabella there. Catch play. Wow, okay, cool. Manfred's impatience for this ceremonial Oh, just just okay. Manfred's impatience for this ceremonial was remarked by his family and neighbours. The former indeed, apprehending the severity of their prince's disposition, did not dare to utter their surmises on this precipitation. Dear God did he swallow a dictionary. Yes. Hippolyta, his wife, an amiable lady, did sometimes venture to represent the danger of marrying their only son so early, considering his great youth and greater infirmities. But she never received any other answer than reflections on her own sterility. She gave him two sons! One son, one daughter. Sorry, two, two children! Two children! Who had given him but one heir. 
His tenants and subjects were less cautious in their discourses. They attributed this hasty wedding to the prince's dread of seeing accomplished an ancient prophecy which was said to have pronounced that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. The fuck does that mean? The fuck does that mean? It sound, I thought that sounded really promising, actually. And... Yeah. You, you'll Giants? Really big people. Just, just keep reading. It was difficult to make any sense of this prophecy, and still less easy to conceive what it had to do with the marriage in question. Yet these mysteries, or contradictions, did not make the populace adhere any less to their in their to their to their opinion. Young Conrad's birthday was fixed for his espousals. Their company was assembled in the chapel of the castle, and everything ready for beginning the divine the divine office. That that D looks like now. Mm. When Conrad himself was missing, Manfred, impatient of the least delay, and who had not observed his son retire, dispatched one of his attendants to summon the young prince. The servant, who had not stayed long enough to have crossed the court to Conrad's apartment, came running back breathless in a frantic manner, his eyes staring and foaming at the mouth. He said nothing but pointed to the court. Anyone actually foam at the mouth was surprised? I don't think so, but that also is a classic trope. I, I don't know. I think it's they're trying to say he's having some sort of seizure because he's so astonished. How did he run? I don't think these people really knew what a seizure was. Right, okay. Fine. The company were struck with terror and amazement. The princess Hippolyta, without knowing what was the matter, but anxious for her son, swooned away. Oh! Manfred, less apprehensive than enraged at the procrastination of the nuptials and at the folly of his domestic, asked imperiously, what was the matter? The fellow made no answer, but continued pointing towards the courtyard, and at last, after repeated questions put to him, cried out, oh, the helmet, the helmet! (laughs) Something you always want exclaimed on the day of your son's wedding. It's fine, it's fine. In the meantime, some of the company had run into the court, which is, you know, the sensible thing to do. From whence was heard a confused noise of shrieks, horror and surprise. Manfred, who became, began to be alarmed at not seeing his son, went himself to get information of what occasioned this strange confusion. Matilda remained, endeavouring to assist her mother, and Isabella stayed for the same purpose, and to avoid showing any impatience for the bridegroom, <laughs> for whom, in truth, she had conceived little affection. Dear God, I don't know why he's like a 15-year-old with bad temper and bad health. I don't think he has a bad temper. I think he's just sickly and a bit pointless. <laughs> That's a harsh thing to say. Just be murdered. He's 15. Sickly and pointless on his tombstone. <laughs> mean of the author yeah gothic uh, authors actually are kind of mean like that like he's 15 years old just wait until you get on devathic oh god oh yeah the first thing that struck manfred's eyes was a group of his servants endeavoring to raise something that appeared to him a mountain of sable plumes he gazed without believing the sight what are you doing cried manfred wrathfully which i'd like to just make the point here that there are no quotation marks in this prose at all so trying to guess what people yeah. are saying is hard it, it does get confusing i don't know if this is a problem with the specific print i've got or if it's actually an original text problem we'll find out mm. actually we won't find out we'll just go with it yeah where is my son a volley of voices replied oh my lord the prince the prince the helmet the helmet no one is helpful in this novel it should be noted Shocked with these lamentable sounds, and dreading he knew not what, he advanced hastily, for what a sight for a father's eyes. He beheld his child dashed to pieces, and almost buried under an enormous helmet, a hundred times more large than any cask ever made for human being, and shaded with a proportionable quality, quantity of black feathers. This is where I had to put the book down and walk away for a bit. For a bit being, like, months? Yeah. Years? Months. Though actually I will admit it actually does sound less bad, read dramatically aloud. <laughs> There's Some things are always better 
read aloud than when you read them quietly in your head. I think gothic literature may be one of those things. I think so. You need the, the helmet, the helmet! I love you. It was, yeah, it was actually a lot worse just silent reading it. Oh. <laughs> I can see why. The horror of the spectacle, the ignorance of all around how this misfortune happened, and above all, the tremendous phenomenon before him took away the prince's speech, yet his silence lasted longer than even grief could occasion. He fixed his eyes on what he wished in vain to believe a vision, and seemed less attentive to his loss, than buried in meditation on the stupendous object that had occasioned it. He touched, he examined the fatal cask, nor could even the bleeding mangled remains of the young prince divert the eyes of Manfred from the portent before him, all who had known his partial fondness for young Conrad, were as much surprised at their prince's insensibility as thunderstruck themselves at the miracle of the helmet. They conveyed the disfigured corpse into the hall without receiving the least direction from Manfred. As little was he attentive to the ladies who remained in the chapel. On the contrary, without mentioning the unhappy princesses, his wife and daughter, the first sounds that dropped from Manfred's lips were, Take care of the Lady Isabella. I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Oh, Manfred. Mm-hmm. The domestics, without observing the singularity of this direction, were guided by their affection to their mistress to consider it as peculiarly addressed to her situation and flew to her assistance, weirdly enough. Oh, servants are stupid in um, the castle of Otranto. It, it's a whole... I well, think this makes sense. They're like, okay, you say Isabella, but no, we're no, pretty no, no, sure no. you mean Hippolyta. No, no, it's, it's an actual thing. Servants are stupid in the world of the castle of Otranto, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little more in the... Yeah, interesting. Yeah. They conveyed her to her chamber. It's classism. Ha <laughs> ha! surprising. They conveyed her to her chamber more dead than alive and indifferent to all the strange circumstances she heard, except the death of her son. Matilda, who doted on her mother, smothered her own grief in amazement and thought of nothing but assisting and comforting her afflicted parent. Isabella, who had been treated by Hippolyta like a daughter, and who returned that tenderness with equal duty and affection, was scarce less assiduous about the princess. At the same time endeavouring to partake and lessen the weight of sorrow, which she thought saw Matilda strove to suppress, for whom she had conceived the warmest sympathy of friendship. Yet her own situation could not help finding its place in her thoughts. She felt no concern for the death of young Conrad, except commiseration, and she was not sorry to be delivered from a marriage which had promised her little felicity, either from her destined bridegroom, or from the severe temper of Manfred, who, though he had distinguished her by great indulgence, had imprinted her mind with terror from his causeless rigour to such amiable princesses as Hippolyta and Matilda. While the ladies were conveying the wretched mother to her bed, Manfred remained in the court, gazing on the ominous cask. I wish they'd just call it a helmet. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the crowd which the strangeness of the event had now assembled round him, the few words he articulated tended solely to inquiries whether any man knew from whence it had come. Nobody could give him the least information. However... As it seemed to be the sole object of his curiosity, it soon became so to the rest of the spectators, whose conjectures were as absurd and improbable as the catastrophe itself was unprecedented. In the midst of their senseless guesses, a young peasant, whom rumour had drawn thither from a neighbouring village, observed that the miraculous helmet was exactly like that, on the figure in black marble of Alfonso the Good, one of the former princess, princes, in the church of St. Nicholas. Villain, what sayest thou? cried Manfred. Apparently not a fan of observant young man. He's really not. Starting from his trance in a tempest of rage and seizing the young man by the collar. How darest thou utter such treason? Thy life shall pay for it. The spectators, who as little comprehended the cause of the prince's fury as all the rest they had seen, were at a loss to unravel this new circumstance. The young peasant himself was still more astonished, not conceiving how he had offended the prince, yet, recollecting himself with a mixture of grace and humility, he disengaged himself from Manfred's grip, and then, with an obeisance which discovered more jealousy of innocence than dismay, he asked with respect of what he was guilty. Manfred, more enraged at the vigour, however decently exerted, with which the young man had shaken off his hold, then appeased by his submission, ordered his attendants to seize him, and, if he had not been withheld by his friends, whom he had invited to the nuptials, would have poignarded the peasant in their arms. For those not familiar with slightly old English, STABBED! 
Thank you. That was very helpful, darling. You're very welcome. <laughs> During this altercation, some of the vulgar spectators had run to the great church, which stood near the castle, and came back open-mouthed, declaring the helmet was missing from Alfonso's statue. That statue is not that big. It's not that big. There's no way it's that big. It's not. And this is, um... Oh, of course. Yes, I see. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh my god! It had such promise. I will grant that the prophecy had a lot of promise. Wow. Manfred, at this news, grew perfectly frantic, and as if he sought that a subject on which to vent the tempest within him, he rushed again at the young pre- peasant, crying, Villain! Monster! Sorcerer! Tis thou hast slain my son! The mob, who wanted some object within the scope of their cape, capacities on whom they might discharge their bewildered reasonings, caught the words from the mouth of their lord and re-echoed, Aye, aye, tis he, tis he, he has stolen the helmet from good Alfonso's tomb and dashed out the brains of our young prince with it. Never reflecting how enormous the disproportion was between the marble helmet that had been in the church and that of steel before their eyes, which seemed a little dumb to me. Nor how impossible it was for a youth, seemingly not twenty, to wield a piece of armour of so prodigious a weight. The folly of these ejaculations brought Manfred to himself. Yet whether provoked at the peasant for having observed the resemblance between the two helmets, and thereby led to the farther discovery of the absence of that in the church, or wishing to bury any fresh rumour under so impertinent supposition, he gravely pronounced that the young man was certainly a necromancer. Necromancer? Dead people here. Or are there? <gasps> and that, till church could take cognizance of the affair, he would have the magician, whom they had thus detected, kept prisoner under the helmet itself, which he ordered his attendants to raise and place the young man under it, declaring he should be kept there without food, with which his own infernal art might furnish him. It's honestly just such a weird decision. You have a dungeon. Put him in a cell. Nope, under the helmet, crushed by sun. Under the helmet. Into the helmet with you. Into the helmet. Weird choices, Manfred. Weird mm. choices. How did you govern a country? Oh, actually, well, not very well, I think. Mm. On, actually, re-necromancers, sometimes people just use it as a synonym for black magic, which... Ah, okay. That's not what that means, but fine. Okay, that makes a bit more sense. I'm a little confused by that, the That's wording. not unique to gothic lit. That's just a thing people do. It wasn't vain. like it. <laughs> Words have meanings? Words have meanings. It was in vain for the youth to represent against this preposterous sentence. In vain did Manfred's friends endeavour to divert him from this savage and ill-grounded resolution. The generality were charmed with their lord's decision, which to their apprehensions carried great appearance of justice, as the magician was to be punished by the very instrument with which he had offended. Nor were they struck with the least compunction at the probability of the youth being starved, for they firmly believed that by his diabolical skill he could easily supply himself with nutriment. Manfred thus saw his commands even cheerfully obeyed, and appointing a guard with strict orders to prevent any food being conveyed to the prisoner, he dismissed his friends and attendants, and retired to his own chamber, after locking the gates of the castle in which he suffered none but his domestics to remain. In the meantime, the care and zeal of the young ladies had brought the Princess Hippolyta to herself, who, amidst the transports of her own sorrow, frequently demanded news of her lord, would have dismissed her attendants to wash over him, and at last enjoined Matilda to leave her and visit and comfort her father. Matilda, who wanted no affectionate duty to Manfred, though she trembled at his austerity, obeyed the orders of Hippolyta, whom she tenderly recommended to Isabella, and acquiring of the domestics for her father was informed that he was retired to his chamber, and had commanded that nobody should have admittance to him. Concluding that he was immersed in sorrow for the death of her brother, untrue, but, you know, a good guess, and fearing to renew his tears by the sight of his sole remaining child, she hesitated whether she should break in upon his affliction, yet solicitude for him, backed by the commands of her mother, encouraged her to venture, disobeying the orders he had given, a fault she had never been guilty of before. The gentle timidity of her nature made her pause for some minutes at his door. She heard him traverse his chamber backwards and forwards with disordered steps, a mood which increased her apprehensions. She was, however, just going to beg admittance, when Manfred suddenly opened his door, and it was now twilight, concurring with the disorder of his mind. As it was now twilight, concurring with the disorder of his mind, he did not distinguish the person, but asked angrily who it was. Matilda replied trembling. That's foreshadowing, by the way. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. 
my dearest father, it is I, <laughs> your daughter. <laughs> Manfred, stepping back hastily, cried, Be gone! I do not want her daughter. And flinging back abruptly, clapped the door against the terrified Matilda. She was too well acquainted with her father's impetuosity to venture a second intrusion. When she had a little recovered the shock of so bitter a reception, she wiped away her tears to prevent the additional stab that the knowledge of it would give to Hippolyta, who questioned her in the most anxious terms on the health of Manfred and how he bore his loss. Matilda assured her he was well, and supported his misfortune with manly fortitude. "'But will he not let me see him?' said Hippolyta mournfully. "'Will he not permit me to blend my tears with his, "'and shed a mother's sorrows in the bosom of her lord? "'Or do you deceive me, Matilda? "'I know how Manfred doted on his son. "'Is not the stroke too heavy for him? "'Has he not sunk under it? "'You do not answer me. "'Alas, I dread the worst. "'Raise me, my, my maidens. I will, "'I will see my lord. "'Bear me to him instantly. "'He is dearer to me than even my children. "'Poor Matilda.' Goodness me. Mm -hmm. Matilda made signs to Isabella to prevent Hippolyta's rising, and both these lovely young women were using their gentle violence to stop and calm the princess when a servant on the part of Manfred arrived and told Isabella that his lord demanded to speak to her. With me? cried Isabella. Go! said Hippolyta, relieved by a message from her lord. Manfred cannot support the sight of his own family. He thinks you less disordered than we are and dreads the shock of my grief. Console him, dear Isabella, and tell him I will smother my own anguish rather than add to his. Foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. It was now evening. The servant who conducted Isabella bore a torch before her. When they came to Manfred, who was walking impatiently about the gallery, he started and said hastily, Take away the light and be gone. Then shutting the door impetuously, he flung himself upon a bench against the wall and bade Isabella sit by him. She obeyed, trembling. I sent for you, lady, said he, and then stopped under great appearance of confusion. My lord? Yes, I sent for you on a matter of great moment, resumed he. Dry your tears, young lady. You have lost your bridegroom, yes. Cruel fate and I have lost the hopes of my race, but Conrad was not worthy of your beauty. How, my lord? said Isabella. Surely you do not suspect me of not feeling the concern I ought. My duty and affection would have always... Think no more of him, interrupted Manfred. He was a sickly puny child, and heaven has perhaps taken him away that I might not trust the honours of my house on so frail a foundation. The line of Manfred calls for numerous supports. My foolish fondness for that boy blinded the eyes of my prudence, but it is better as it is. I hope in a few years to have reason to rejoice at the death of Conrad. Yep. Wow. Yep. Wow. Did he mourn him at all? He was just like, oh, helmet. I don't think so. I mean, I should fuck Isabella. This is not a good novel, but I think Manfred is actually a pretty good character. Obviously not morally good. I think Manfred is actually fairly well written mostly and coherent as a character and actually kind of an interesting well thought out villain mm. I am finding him fun words cannot paint the astonishment of Isabella at first she apprehended that grief had disordered Manfred's understanding her next thought suggested that this strange discourse was designed to ensnare her she feared that Manfred had perceived her indifference for his son and in consequence of that idea she replied Good my lord, do not doubt my tenderness. My heart would have accompanied my hand. Conrad would have engrossed all my care, and wherever fate shall dispose of me, I shall always cherish his memory, and regard your highness and virtuous Hippolyta as my parents. Curse on Hippolyta! cried Manfred. Forget her from this moment as I do. In short, lady, you have missed a husband undeserving of your charms. They shall now be better disposed of. Instead of a sickly boy, you shall have a husband in the prime of his age, who will know how to value your beauties, and who may expect a numerous offspring. Alas, my lord, said Isabella, my mind is too sadly engrossed by the recent catastrophe in your family to think of another marriage. If ever my father returns, and it shall be his pleasure, I shall obey as I did when I consented to give my hand to your son, but until his return, permit me to remain under your hospitable roof and employ the melancholy hours in assuaging yours, Hippolyta's, and the fair Matilda's affliction. I desired you once before, 
said Manfred angrily, not to name that woman. From this hour she must be a stranger to you, as she must be to me. In short, Isabella, since I cannot give you my son, I offer you myself. Heavens, cried Isabella, who apparently wasn't following this the same way the rest of us were. <laughs> to be fair, she's a 15-year-old in a state of shock, and this is... Something. Yeah. This is something. I mean, she might be older than 15, actually. I'm not, it's really not state her really age. clear how old Isabella is. She's no. clearly meant to be a peer of Matilda, but... Yeah, between 15 and 18. Yeah. Heavens, cried Isabella, waking from her delusion. What do I hear? You, my lord, you, my father-in-law, the father of Conrad, the husband of the virtuous and tender Hippolyta. I tell you, said Manfred imperiously absolutely ignoring her hints. Hippolyta is no longer my wife. I divorce her from this hour. Too long has she cursed me by her unfruitfulness. My fate depends on having sons, and this night, I trust, will give a new date to my hopes. At those words, he seized the cold hand of Isabella, who was half dead with fright and horror. She shrieked and started from him. Manfred rose to pursue her when the moon which was now up and gleamed in at the opposite casement, presented to his sight the plumes of the fatal helmet, which rose to the height of the windows, waving backwards and forwards in a tempestuous manner, and accompanied with a hollow and rustling sound. Isabella, who gained courage from her situation, and who dreaded nothing so much as Manfred's pursuit of his declaration, cried, Look, my lord, see heaven itself declares against your impious intentions. Heaven nor ha- Oh, <coughs> we've changed characters. Heaven nor hell shall impede my designs, said Manfred, advancing again to seize the princess. At that instant, the portrait of his grandfather, which hung over the bench where they had been sitting, uttered a deep sigh and heaved its breast. The fuck? Yeah, okay. Bye. Does that happen? Any, does there, is there any follow-up on this? Nothing. Okay. Isabella, whose back was turned to the picture, saw not the motion, nor knew whence the sound came, but started and said, Hark, my lord, what sound was that? And at the same time made towards the door. Good show, Isabella. Yeah. Manfred, distracted between the flight of Isabella, who had now reached the stairs, and his inability to keep his eyes from the picture, which began to move, had, however, advanced some steps after her, still looking backwards on the portrait, when he saw it quit its panel and ascend on the floor with a grave and melancholy air. Do I dream? cried Manfred, returning. Or are the devils themselves in league against me? Speak, infernal spectre! Or if thou art my grandsire, why dost thou too conspire against thy wretched descendant, who too dearly pays for? Ere he could finish the sentence, the vision sighed again, and made a sign to Manfred to follow him. Lead on, cried Manfred. I will follow thee to the gulf of perdition. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't follow ghosts. Bad book. I mean, I gotta say, actually, the my ancestor, why would you stand against me? Maybe because what you're doing is wrong. Yep. Maybe. Somebody's parents never said no to him. <coughs> the spectre marched sedately but dejected to the end of the gallery and turned into a chamber on the right hand. Manfred accompanied him at a little distance, full of anxiety and horror, but resolved. As he would have entered the chamber... The door was clapped to with violence by an invisible hand. The prince, collecting courage from this delay, would have forcibly burst open the door with his foot, but found that it resisted his utmost efforts. Since hell will not satisfy my curiosity, said Manfred, I will use the human means in my power for preserving my race. Isabella shall not escape me. That lady, whose resolution had given way to terror the moment she had quitted Manfred, continued her flight to the bottom of the principal staircase. There she stopped, not knowing whether to direct her steps, her steps, nor how to escape from the impetuosity of the prince. <coughs> the gates of the castle she knew were locked, and guards placed in the court. Should she, as her heart prompted her, go and prepare Hippolyta for the cruel destiny that awaited her? She did not doubt, but Manfred would seek her there, and that his violence would incite him to double the injury he meditated, without leaving room for them to avoid the impetuosity of his passions. Curiosity is such a gentle word for attempted rape. Yeah. He uses, I think he uses impetuous a lot to mean things that... Yeah, he's not impetuous, he's a rapist. 
Yeah, I feel like he uses it in places where violence or um, evil, lacking in impulse control and things like that might yes. be a better choice of word. I think maybe. Delay might give him time to reflect on the horrid measures he had conceived or Spoiler, produce... it won't. <laughs> or produce some circumstance in her favour. If she could, for that night at least, avoid his odious purpose. Yet, where conceal herself? How avoid the pursuit he would infallibly make throughout the castle? As these thoughts passed rapidly through her mind, she recollected a subterraneous passage which led from the vaults of the castle to the church of St. Nicholas. How convenient. My thing is, why does she know about this? (laughs) How does she know about this? Could she reach the altar before she was overtaken? She knew even Manfred's violence would not dare to profane the sacredness of the place. Why? Why do you think this girl? And she determined, if no other means of deliverance offered, to shut herself up forever amongst the holy virgins, whose convent was contiguous to the cathedral. In this resolution, she seized a lamp that burned at the foot of the staircase and hurried towards the secret passage. The lower part of the castle was hollowed into several intricate cloisters, and it was not easy for one under so much anxiety to find the door that opened into the cavern. How did she know it was there? I mean, I my, I actually, my thought is, did the priest tell her it was there? Because the priest isn't a stupid man and has a whole lot of stuff going on. But at the same time, if the priest was that clued into what was going on, I just have a lot of questions, basically, about his yeah. motivations here. <coughs> An awful silence reigned throughout those subterraneous regions, except now and then some blasts of wind that shook the doors she had passed, and which grating on the rusty hinges were re-echoed through that long labyrinth of darkness. Every murmur struck her with new terror, yet more she dreaded to hear the wrathful voice of Manfred urging his domestics to pursue her. She trod as softly as impatience would give her leave, yet frequently stopped and listened to hear if she was followed. In one of those moments, she thought she heard a sigh. She shuddered and recoiled a few places. In a moment, she thought she had heard the step of some person. Her blood curdled. She concluded it was Manfred. Every suggestion that horror could inspire rushed into her mind. She condemned her rash flight, which had thus exposed her to his rage in a place where her cries were not likely to draw anybody to her assistance. Yet the sound seemed not to come from behind. If Manfred knew where she was, he must have followed her. She was still in one of the cloisters, and the steps she had heard were too distant to proceed from the way she had come. Cheered with this reflection and hoping to find a friend in whoever was not the prince, she left. <coughs> she was going to advance, when a door that stood ajar at some distance to the left was opened gently. But ere her lamp, which she held up, could discover who opened it, the person retreated precipitately, on seeing the light. Isabella, whom every incident was sufficient to dismay, hesitated whether she should proceed. Her dread of Manfred soon outweighed every other terror. The very circumstance of the person avoiding her gave her a sort of courage. It could only be, she thought, some domestic belonging to the castle. Her gentleness had never raised her an enemy, and conscious innocence made her hope that, unless sent by the prince's order to seek her, his servants would rather assist than prevent her flight. Fortifying herself with these reflections, and believing, by what she could observe, that she was near the mouth of the subterraneous cavern, she approached the door that had been opened, but a sudden gust of wind that met her at the door extinguished her lamp and left her in total darkness. Mm-hmm. So dramatic. Words cannot paint the horror of the princess's situation. Alone in so dismal a place, her mind imprinted with all terrible events of the day, hopeless of escaping, expecting every moment the arrival of Manfred, and far from tranquil on knowing she was within reach of somebody, she knew not whom, who for some cause seemed concealed thereabouts. All these thoughts crowded on her distracted mind, and she was ready to sink under her apprehensions. She addressed herself to every saint in heaven and inwardly implored their assistance. For a considerable time, she remained in an agony of despair. At last, as softly as was possible, she felt for the door, and having found it, entered trembling into the vault from whence she had heard the sigh and steps. What an interesting choice. Yeah. It gave her a kind of momentary joy to perceive an imperfect ray of clouded moonshine gleam from the roof of the vault, which seemed to be fallen in and from whence hung a fragment of earth or building, she could not distinguish which, that appeared to have been crushed inwards. She advanced eagerly towards the chasm, when she discerned a human form standing close against the wall. 
She shrieked, believing it was the ghost of her betrothed Conrad. The figure, advancing, said in a submissive voice, Be not alarmed, lady, I will not injure you. Isabella, a little encouraged by the words and tone of the voice of the stranger, and recollecting that this must be the person who had opened the door, recovered her spirits enough to reply, Sir, whoever you are, take pity on a wretched princess standing on the brink of destruction. Assist me to escape from this fatal castle, or in a few moments I may be made miserable for ever. Alas, said the stranger, what can I do to assist you? I will die, I will die in your defence, but I am unacquainted with the castle and want... Oh, said Isabella, hastily, hastily interrupting him. Help me but find a trap door that must be hereabout, and it is the greatest service you can do me, for I have not a minute to lose. Saying those words, she felt about in the pavement and directed the stranger to search likewise for a smooth piece of brass enclosed in one of the stones. That, she said, is the lock which opens with a spring of which I know the secret. If I can find that, I may escape. If not, alas, courteous stranger, I fear I shall have involved you in my misfortunes. Manfred will suspect you for the accomplice of my flight, and you will fall a victim to his resentment. I value not my life, said the stranger, and it will be some comfort to lose it in trying to deliver you from his tyranny. What a suicidal young man. He's like this all throughout, and I love him. He's a good boy. <coughs> Generous youth, said Isabella, how shall I ever requite? As she uttered these words, a ray of moonshine streaming through a cranny of the ruin above shone directly on the lock they sought. Oh, transport, <laughs> said Isabella, here is the trap door. And taking out a key, she touched the spring, which, starting aside, discovered an iron ring. Lift up the door, said the princess. The stranger obeyed, and beneath appeared some stone steps descending into a vault totally dark. We must go down there said Isabella. Follow me. Dark and dismal as it is, we can't miss our way. It leads directly to the church of St. Nicholas. But perhaps, added the princess modestly, you have no reason to leave the castle, nor have I further occasion for your service. In a few minutes I shall be safe from Manfred's rage. Only let me know to whom I am so much obliged. I will never quit you, said the stranger eagerly, till I have placed you in safety. Nor thank me, princess. More generous than I am, though you are my principal care. Nor think me, princess, more generous than I am. Though you are my principal care, the stranger was interrupted by a sudden noise of voices that seemed approaching, and they soon distinguished these words. Talk not to me of necromancers! I tell you she must be in the castle. I will find her in spite of enchantment. I would like to have on a t-shirt. Talk not to me of necromancers. I'll make that for you, baby. Thank you. Oh, heavens, cried Isabella, it is the voice of Manfred. Make haste or we are ruined. And shut the trap door after you. Saying this, she descended the steps precipitately. And as the stranger hastened to follow her, he let the door slip out of his hands. It fell and the spring closed over it. He tried in vain to open it, not having observed Isabella's method of touching the spring, nor had he many moments to make an essay. The noise of the falling door had been heard by Manfred, who, directed by the sound, hastened thither, attended by his servants with torches. It must be Isabella, cried Manfred. Before he entered the vault, she is escaping by the subterraneous passage. <laughs> but she cannot have got far. What was the astonishment of the prince when instead of Isabella, the light of the torches discovered him, the young peasant, whom he thought confined under the fatal helmet. Traitor, said Manfred. How camest thou here? I thought thee in disgrace above in the court. I am no traitor, replied the young man boldly, nor am I answerable for your thoughts. Presumptuous <laughs> villain! <laughs> cried Manfred. I really do love him. Dost thou provoke my wrath? Tell me, how hast thou escaped from above? Thou hast corrupted thy guards and their lives shall answer for it. My poverty, said the peasant calmly, will disculpate them. Though the ministers of a tyrant's wrath, to thee they are faithful and but too willing to execute the orders which you unjustly opposed upon them. Art thou so hardy as to dare my vengeance? said the prince. But torches shall force the truth from thee. Tell me, I will know thy, thy accomplices. There was my accomplice, said the youth smiling, and pointing to the roof. <laughs> Manfred ordered the torches to be held up, and perceived that one of the cheeks of the enchanted cask had forced its way through the pavement of the court, as the servants had let it fall over the peasant, and had broken through into the vaults, leaving a gap through which the peasant had pressed himself some minutes before he was found by Isabella. 
Was that the way by which thou didst descend? said Manfred. It was, said the youth. What noise was that? said Manfred, which I heard as I entered the cloister. A door clapped, said the peasant. I heard it as well as you. What door? said Manfred hastily. I am not acquainted with your castle, said the peasant. This is the first time I ever entered it, and this vault is the only part of it within which I ever was. But I tell thee, said Manfred, wishing to find out if the youth had discovered the trap door, it was this way I found the noise. My servants heard it too. My lord, interrupted one of them officiously, to be sure it was a trap door, and he was going to make his escape. Peace, blockhead, said the prince angrily. If he was going to escape, how should he come on this side? I will know from his own mouth what noise it was I heard. Tell me truth. Thy life depends on thy veracity. My veracity is dearer to me than my life, said the peasant, nor would I purchase the one by forfeiting the other. Indeed, young philosopher, said Manfred contemptuously, tell me then, what was the noise I heard? Ask me what I can answer, said he, and put me to death instantly if I tell you a lie. Why is he like this? Spoilers. I see. Manfred, growing impatient at the steady valour and indifference of the youth, cried, Well then, thou man of truth, answer, was it the fall of the trap-door that I heard? It was, said the youth. It was, said the prince, and how dost thou come to know there was a trap-door here? I saw the plate of black brass by a gleam of moonshine, replied he. But what told thee it was a lock, said Manfred. How didst thou discover the secret of opening it? Providence that delivered me from the helmet was able to direct me to the spring of a lock, said he. Providence should have gone a little farther and have placed thee out of the reach of my resentment, said Manfred. When Providence had taught thee to open the lock, it abandoned thee for a fool who did not know how to make use of its favours. Why dost thou not pursue the path pointed out for thy escape? Why dost thou shut the trap door before thou hadst descended the steps? I might ask you, my lord said the peasant, how I, totally unacquainted with your castle, was to know that those steps led to any outlet. But I scorn to evade your questions. Wherever those steps led to, perhaps I should have explored the way. I could not have been in a worse situation than I was, but the truth is, I let the trapdoor fall. Your immediate arrival followed. I had given the alarm. What implored it me, whether I was seized a moment sooner or a moment later? Thou art a resolute villain for thy years, said Manfred. Yet on reflection I suspect thou dost but trifle with me. Thou hast not yet told me how thou didst open the lock. Then I will show you, my lord, said the peasant, and taking up a fragment of stone that had fallen from above, he laid himself on the trapdoor and began to beat on the piece of brass that covered it, meaning to gain time for the escape of the princess. This presence of mind, joined to the frankness of the youth, staggered Manfred. He even felt a disposition towards pardoning one who had been guilty of no crime. Manfred was not one of those savage tyrants who wanton in cruelty unprovoked. Yeah, I... He wasn't? So, this guy has an interesting take on how morality works, and there's a lot to say there. We'll, we'll get to it. Okay. The circumstances of his fortune had given an asperity to his temper, which was naturally humane, and his virtues were always ready to operate when his passion did not obscure his reason. While the prince was in this suspense, a confused noise of voices echoed through the distant vaults. As the sound approached, he distinguished the clamour of some of those domestics whom he had dispersed through the castle in search of Isabella, calling out, Where is my lord? Where is the prince? Here I am, said Manfred as they came nearer. Have you found the princess? The first that arrived replied, Oh, my lord, I'm so glad that we have found you. Found me, said Manfred. Have you found the princess? We thought we had, my lord, said the fellow, looking terrified. But... But what, cried the prince, has she escaped? Yakers and myself, my lord. Yes, I am Diego, interrupted the second, who came up in still greater consternation. Speak one of you at a time, said Manfred. I ask you, where is the princess? We do not know, said they both together, but we are frightened out of our wits. So I think, blockheads, Warning. said Manfred. Things are about to get batshit. More batshit? Yeah. More batshit? Yeah. More batshit? Stop asking the question. The answer will remain the same. So I think, blockheads, said Manfred, what is it has scared you thus? 
Oh, my lord, said Yaquez, Diego has seen such a sight. Your highness would not believe our eyes. What new absurdity is this, cried Manfred. Give me a direct answer, or by heaven. Why, my lord, if it please your highness to hear me, said the poor fellow, Diego and I, yes, I and Yaquez, cried his uh, comrade, did I not forbid you to speak both at a time, said the prince. You, Yaquez, answer for the other fool. Answer, for the other fool seems more distracted than thou art. What is the matter? My gracious lord, said Yaquez, if it please your highness to hear me, Diego and I, according to your highness's orders, went to search for the young lady. But being comprehensive that we might meet the ghost of my young lord, your highness's son, God rest his soul, as he has not received Christian burial, sought, cried Manfred in a rage, as it is it only a ghost that thou hast seen? Only a ghost? Oh, he saw one already today. It's not a big deal. People see ghosts all the time. Okay. Oh, worse, worse, my lord, cried Diego. I'd rather have seen ten whole ghosts. Grant me. Patience, said Manfred. These blockheads distract me. Out of my sight, Diego. And thou, Yaquez, tell me in one word, art thou sober? Art thou raving? Thou wast want to have some sense. Has the other sot frightened himself and thee too? Speak, what is it he fancies he has seen? Why, my lord, replied Yakis, trembling, I was going to tell your highness that instead that since the calamitous misfortune of my young lord, God rest his soul, not one of us, your highness's faithful servants, indeed, we are about the castle put two together. So Diego and I, thinking that my young lady might be in the great gallery, went up there to look for her and tell her your highness wanted something to impart to her. Oh, blundering fools, cried Manfred, and in the meantime she has made her mistake because you were afraid of goblins. Why, thou knave! She left me in the gallery. I came from thence myself. For all that. For all that, she may be there still, for aught I know, said Yakis. But the devil shall help me if I seek her there again. Poor Diego. I do not believe he will ever recover it. Recover what? said Manfred. Am I never to learn what it is has terrified these rascals? But I lose my time. Follow me, slave. I will see if she is in the gallery. For heaven's sake, my dear good lord, cried Yakis, do not go into the gallery. Satan himself, I believe, and is, the great ch is in the great chamber next to the gallery. Manfred, who hitherto had treated the terror of his servants as an idle panic, was struck at this new circumstance. He recollected the apparition of the portrait and the sudden closing of the door at the end of the gallery. His voice faltered, and he asked with disorder, What is in the great chamber? <laughs> My lord, said Yaquez, when Diego and I came into the gallery, he went first, for he said he had more courage than I. So when we came to the gallery, we found nobody. We looked under every bench and stool, and still we found nobody. Were all their pictures in their places? <laughs> said Manfred. Yes, my lord, answered Yaquez, but we did not think of looking behind them. Well, well, said Manfred, proceed. When we came to the door of the great chamber, continued Yarkes, we found it shut. And could not you open it? said Manfred. Oh, yes, my lord. Would to heaven we had not, replied he. Nay, it was not I, neither, nor it was Diego. He'd grown foolhardy and would go on, though I advised him not. If ever I open a door that is shut again. Trifle not, said Manfred, shuddering. But tell me what you saw in the great chamber on opening the door. I, my lord, said Yarkes, I saw nothing. I was behind Diego, but I heard the noise. Yarkes, said Manfred in a solemn tone of voice, tell me, I adjure thee, by the souls of my ancestors, what it was thou sawest, what it was thou heardest. I kind of love how he's at a point where he's realised shouting at them isn't working. <laughs> Nothing's working. So he's actually trying to be reasonable. It was Diego saw it, my lord. It was not I, replied Yarkes. I only heard the noise. Diego had no sooner opened the door than he cried out and ran back. I ran back too and said, is it the ghost? The ghost? No, no, said Diego, and his hair stood on end. It is a giant, I believe. He is clad all in armour, for I saw his foot and part of his leg, and they're as large as the helmet below in the court. As he said these words, my lord, we heard a violent motion and the rattling of armour as if the giant was rising, for Diego had told me since that he believes the giant was lying down, for the foot and leg were stretched at length on the floor. Before we could get to the end of the gallery, we heard the door of the great chamber clap behind us, but we did not dare turn back to see if the giant was following us. Yet now I think on it, 
We must have heard him if he had pursued us, but for heaven's sake, good my lord, send for the chaplain, and have the castle exorcised, for, for certain it is enchanted. I pray do, my lord, cried all the servants at once, or we must leave your highness's service. Peace, dotards, said Manfred, and follow me. I will know what all this means. We, my lord, cried they with one voice, we would not go up to the gallery for your highness's revenue. The young peasant, who had stood silent, now spoke. Will your highness, said he, permit me to try this adventure? My life is of no consequence to anybody. I fear no bad angel, and I have offended no good one. Your behaviour your behavior is above your seeming, said Manfred, viewing him with surprise and admiration. Hereafter I will reward your bravery. But now, continued he with a sigh, I am so circumstanced that I dare trust no eyes but my own. However, I give you leave to accompany me. Manfred, when he first followed Isabella from the gallery, had gone directly to the apartment of his wife, concluding that the princess had retired thither. Hippolyta, who knew his step, rose with anxious fondness to meet her lord, whom she had not seen since the death of their son. She would have flown in a transport mixed of joy and grief to his bosom, but he pushed her rudely off and said, Where is Isabella? Isabella, my lord? said the astonished Hippolyta. <coughs> "'Yes, Isabella!' cried Manfred imperiously. "'I want Isabella!' "'My lord!' replied Matilda, who perceived how much his behaviour had shocked her mother. "'She has not been with us as your highness summoned her to your apartment.' "'Tell me where she is!' said the prince. "'I do not want to know where she has been!' "'My good lord!' said Hippolyta. "'You are not to tell you the truth. "'Isabella left us by your command and has not returned since. "'But, my good lord, compose yourself. "'Retire to your rest. "'This dismal day has disordered you. "'Isabella shall wait your orders in the morning.' "'What? "'Then you know where she is?' cried Manfred. "'Tell me directly, for I will not lose an instant. "'And you, woman,' speaking to his wife, "'order your chaplain to attend me forthwith.' "'Isabella,' said Hippolyta calmly, is retired, I suppose, to her chamber. She is not accustomed to watch at this late hour. Gracious, my lord, continued she, let me know what has disturbed you. Has Isabella offended you? Trouble me not with questions, said Manfred, but tell me where she is. Matilda shall call her, said the princess. Sit down, my lord, and resume your wonted fortitude. What? Art thou jealous of Isabella, replied he, that you wish to be present at our interview? Ever jump there? A little bit of a leap. Projection going on, maybe. Guilty conscience. Good heavens, my lord," said Hippolyta. "What is your highness? What, what is it your highness means? Thou, thou wilt know ere many minutes are past," said the cruel prince. "Send your chaplain to me and wait my pleasure here." At these words, he flung out of the room in search of Isabella, leaving the amazed ladies thunderstruck with his words and frantic deportment. And lost in vain conjectures on what he was meditating, Manfred was now returning from the vault, attended by the peasant and a few of his servants, whom he had obliged to accompany him. He ascended the staircase without stopping till he arrived at the gallery, at the door of which he met Hippolyta and her chaplain. When Diego had been dismissed by Manfred, he had gone directly to the princess's apartment, with the alarm of what he had seen. That excellent lady, who no more than Manfred doubted of the reality of the vision, yet affected, it to, treat, affected to treat it as a delirium of the servant. Willing, however, to save her lord from any additional shock, and prepared by a series of grief not to tremble at any accession to it, she determined to make herself the first sacrifice, if fate had marked the present hour for their destruction. Dismissing the reluctant Matilda to her rest, who in vain sued for leave to accompany her mother, and attended only by her chaplain, Hippolyta had visited the gallery and great chamber, and now, with more serenity of soul than she had felt for many hours, she met her lord and assured him that the vision of the gigantic leg and foot was all a fable, and no doubt an impression made by fear and the dark and dismal hour of the night on the minds of the servants. She and the chaplain had examined the chamber and found everything in the usual order. Manfred, though persuaded like his wife that the vision had been no work of fancy, recovered a little from the tempest of mind into which so many strained events had thrown him. Ashamed, too, of his inhuman treatment of a princess, who returned every injury with new marks of tenderness and duty, he felt mm. returning love forcing itself into his eyes, but not less ashamed of feeling remorse towards one, against whom he was inwardly meditating a yet more bitter outrage, he curbed the yearnings of his heart, and did not dare to lean even towards pity. The next transition of his soul was to exquisite villainy. 
Presuming on the unshaken submission of Hippolyta, he flattered himself that she would not only acquiesce with patience to a divorce, but would obey if it was his pleasure, and endeavouring to persuade Isabella to give him her hand. But ere he could indulge this horrid hope, he reflected that Isabella was not to be found. Coming to himself, he gave orders that every avenue to the castle should be strictly guarded, and charged his domestics on pain of their lives to suffer nobody to pass out. The young peasant, to whom he spoke favourably, he ordered to remain at a small chamber on the stairs, in which there was a pallet bed, and the key of which he took away himself, telling the youth he would talk with him in the morning. Then, dismissing his attendants and bestowing a sullen kind of half-nod on Hippolyta, he retired to his own chamber. So, what do you think? Well, man, I had shoes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Also, the young man needs to stop saying, I do not care about my life. It has no meaning to me. But he's a hero. How can he be appropriately heroic if he doesn't regularly assure you he doesn't care if he dies or not? How is it heroic to be courageous when you don't care about the outcome? Because he cares about the truth and justice and his virtue more than... Yeah, I... he's saying his life has no meaning. He's not saying I value oh, no, no. this above my oh, no, life. He's lying. He's lying. Oh, okay. He's lying. Why is he lying to princesses? Because is it because it's seen as dashing? No, it's because there's a complicated secret identity going on. Oh, is it's clever wordplay? Yes. I see. Oh, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> clever wordplay. I can actually see how some of the servant dialogue is funny now it's been read aloud because. I when I read it, it didn't come off as funny to me, and I didn't really understand why anyone else thought it was. But I love those. No, I get it. They're great. There. No, me and so and so, so and so and I, <laughs> we went into the parlor. I didn't see it, my lord. My friend saw it, and you've sent him out of the room. Oh right. Okay. So the first thing, if anyone's wondering why Isabella keeps referring to him as her father-in-law, it's because according to church law. As soon as you were formally engaged, you were then forever and ever related to these people in the same way you would be if you'd actually got married, even if you then married somebody else or didn't manage to get married. So by church law, even if Manfred can get rid of his wife, it's still incest for him to have sex with Isabella. Right. Though you can get papal dispensations for that kind of thing, so... You can get papal dispensation to marry your aunt if you're a Habsburg. Uh, I see. Troubling. Anyway, um, right, and the other thing. The thing where the servants are stupid and Manfred is inexplicably virtuous and Hippolyta and Matilda love him desperately and always assume he's going to do something nice when all past experience would have taught him otherwise is part of a complicated philosophy on the nature of virtue and how it's inborn servants are lower class people so they're stupid they're cowardly they don't have any higher virtues whereas noble people are inherently virtuous especially noble men and of course female virtues are different from male virtues female virtues are basically slavish devotion to your nearest male relative no matter how badly he treats you So because Hippolyta is a virtuous woman, she loves Manfred powerfully, even though he's literally never been nice to her once in his entire life. I see. And that explains why she's always just like, oh, darling, darling, your father must be feeling so terrible right now. You must leave me and take care of him. And I love him more than I love my children, because as a virtuous woman, of course, she passionately loves her husband more than anything in the world. I see. Because I, I guess women are vending machines and you just put... Oh, no, sorry, we're, we're computer programs. Right. So you just have to put the right code in and you get love out. And marriage, I guess, is the code. The question I it's have... It's a lot more cliched sounding than it's I know he hasn't had enough sons, mm-hmm. but why does he keep saying she's infertile? I mean, even by Henry VIII's standards, she's not infertile. She gave him two children, one of which uh... was male. Well, the, the idea is she wasn't, like, she, was, she wasn't completely infertile from the get-go. But, obviously, since she had Conrad, she has been infertile. Right, 15 years of no more children. Yeah, she's, she has been, she's, he, never, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you were infertile, he says, you are sterile. Mm. 
So, but he does say at one point in the prose that her infertility or, or yeah. inability to give him any children is what's pissing him off, which it reads weird when he follows that up with his son and daughter. It's because he needs a lot more children than that. And more than the average medieval lord, he's actually got some stuff going on there. Mm. He needs many, many children. Prophecy, Alarming. terror. Ah, uh, yeah, no, he, he needs he needs a lot of heirs. I suppose this is another thing that will explain why he keeps saying my race as opposed to my yes. family. Yes. I see. Yes. Yes, because that's weird. He's, he's specifically thinking of his bloodline. Right. It's all about the bloodline. Everything's all the way, it's all about the bloodline. Mm-hmm. I think Manfred's interesting. I think he is compelling as a character. Like, he's obviously a bad character. Yeah. But he brings to mind for me like your Shakespearean villains. Yeah. He's a bad he's a bad guy but a good character. Yeah, he's a lot of fun to read. His uh it's hard on the voice because I decided <laughs> to go with angry shouting man and it's uh, it's hard on the vocal cords to keep that up because he doesn't stop shouting mm-hmm. for the entirety of the chapter. Um but he's a lot of fun. I love that he's just twists on a dime and that mm-hmm. he's just like, Okay, my son's dead, I'm gonna have sex with his wife. Of course. At this, at this point, I actually still had a lot of hope for the book turning out fairly well, despite the ridiculous helmet. Because there's a lot of really interesting setup here and a lot of cool story arts. Yeah, I enjoyed the, the ghost just walking out of the painting. And I enjoyed the yeah. the random armour laying down and the, the, the foreshadowing the, from are, the are servants. Are all the people still in their paintings? I do find it a little annoying. Um... There was so much potential, but... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I find it a little absurd that when he comes into the um, the vault, he's like, how did you get down here? There's a hole in the ceiling. Like, you could see the... It specifically said you could see the moon through a hole in the ceiling. How did you not notice the hole in the, in the ceiling that goes fantasy, outside? I read this fantasy novel once that where one of the characters, she was an assassin, and she made this claim that nobody ever looks up. So maybe it's that. You know, nobody ever looks up, so... I could buy that, except there's light coming into a dark place from up. But they've got torches, so Yeah, I mm. I don't know. I don't I don't think that's actually it. I think they just Yeah, no unobservant. No, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I just there was there was so much potential here, but he he doesn't properly close off story arcs and he leaves a lot of things unfinished and it's just It's a fun setup so far. It really the, is. Uh, the helmet, the vaults, the subterranean passage. <laughs> uh, that everyone knows about. Subterranean passage. It's a secret passage, but even the visiting <gasps> princess knows about it and knows how oh, no, to. She's op- been living there since she was a child. Right. Yeah, that they've had custody of her for a long time. Because it's hard to pick up from the first page how long yeah. she's been there. Because they're That's just like thing. they arranged her marriage with Conrad. Was it like last week? Was it a couple no, of years ago? There's, there's the, this is something he does. It reminds me of when you're, you know, in your early teens and you're writing a story and you don't plan it out and you suddenly get a really cool idea halfway through and you write it in, but you don't go back and fix. fix uh... Yeah. I'm fairly sure he did that. I see. And the thing is, I just, I really think he needed an editor. Oh, so many books did. I honestly, I honestly think, I honestly think if he'd had an editor who'd just sat him down and gone, no, (laughs) then he could, Castle of the Toronto could have been what I wanted it to be. I see. But instead, it, it's this instead it's complete this. disaster. It's quite fun. I, I like yeah. Isabella's resourcefulness. I like that she was She's like, feisty. Have you heard that noise? As I run for the door. <laughs> Distraction. Good job, Isabella. I also like her, her heavy hints when he's starting to hit on her of, You're married. I love your wonderful, virtuous, devoted wife. And Big fan of your wife. Love your daughter. You know, Big fan of your wife. You're my father. Can I stress enough how inappropriate this would be and the fact that I love your wife, whom you're She's, married to? You're, we're all big fans of your wife here, so... Yes. <laughs> Everyone's obviously a big fan of her it, it, You know, some things are classic. I think that's my favourite line so far is the servants hearing him say, go take care of Lady Isabella. We're just like, yeah. we hear the name Isabella. We're going to assume you meant Hippolyta, considering she's the mother of the guy that just died. And your wife. So we're just going to go take care of her? Because... I feel like there's also quite a lot of disconnect between the... And I know it's to do with the way he's trying to write a story about villains while preserving his ideas about intrinsic morality. 
but I feel like oh, there's... he's not writing a criticism of intrinsic morality. Oh no, no, he's bought into it. No, no, no. This is all sincere. He's. I feel like he's being sarcastic because no. you know, Manfred is not a tyrant. He just locked a random guy under no. a helmet for saying, "Gee, that looks like the helmet." No. It would. No, this is. This is a low bar. There's a lot of disconnect because he's trying to write a villain, but he also wants to maintain that this villain is inherently noble of character on some level because he's of noble birth. Oh. Like he's there's spoilers on that one as well, actually, because his attitude sort of evolves as he's writing the novel, and it's it's complicated. We'll get to it, but you know, there's this real dissonance because he's violent, he's unpredictable, he's passionately and pettily tyrannical but he's virtuous and always moved to virtue he just mistreats his wife and plans to rape the 15 year old who lives in their house and when you're happy to murder people who've made him angry but he's a virtuous he's a virtuous ruler he's so virtuous because he's of noble blood when your first introduction to the character from the eyes of the young lady who lives there is she's scared of him because of how terribly he treats his wife and daughter uh -huh. and how bad his tempers are then you've got to kind of question the idea that the author has that he's a virtuous mm -hmm. and not ruled by his passions ruler who's not a tyrant. It's just like, okay, you're showing us something very different to what you're telling this us. Is there is a real disregard for women in, in his writing. Mm. And he really seems to have trouble grasping the psychology of women, as in they are human beings who have a coherent and consistent psychology because... He sort of almost gets it, but then he's like, wait, no, because women love men who mistreat them because that's how it's supposed to work, so it's how it must work, and you sort of swing around and... I do like the young man. I like that he's just... Yeah, he's delightful. So snarky with Manfred. He does not stop. He's excellent. He, he I'm is, enjoying his snark. He is the most extra. His, this is the only room of your castle I've been in. Why would I know that there's a trapdoor there? Why would I know where it goes, sir? Yeah. What are you doing with your life? How am I supposed to know this, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. I I think that's everything. Do you have anything else you want to add? Um, I'm enjoying... I wouldn't say I'm enjoying the prose, but I kind of like some of the imagery he's coming oh, up yeah. with. Um, gentle violence, or however... Or violent... No, it was gentle violence? I like Gentle that. violence is nice. I, like I kind that. of like the way he painted such a superlatively gothic picture of the subterranean passage yeah, that was as good. Uh, Isabella was getting close to it with the, like, the creaking and the way the light was the aesthetic uh, falling. Is, the aesthetic is on point. Yeah, he's great. And I just like the absurdity of the giant helmet that everyone thinks could have come off a small statue. Well, they don't think it could have come off the small statue. Initially, the crowd is like, oh yes, oh yes, he took the helmet from the statue and brained him yes. with it. And the prose is like, they completely ignore the fact that it's a lot smaller, I think, a lot bigger. I think the implication is either that they can't see it, or they think he's used his spooky magic I think initially the implication is just that they're dumb, and then uh, they progress to I'm doing that thing magic. where I, I give him more credit, because, yeah, right, they're, of course, they're peasants. Yeah. But yeah, I think I am. I'm excited for the next chapter. I'm excited to see where this goes and what no, we're good. greater weirdness is going to come out of this book. Um, yeah, this is this is an interesting journey. Yeah. All right. See you next time.